Phase the Sixth, The Convert, Part One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Five. Till this moment, she had never seen or heard from D'Urberville since her departure from Trantridge. The rencounter came at a heavy moment, one of all moments calculated to permit its impact with the least emotional shock. But such was unreasoning memory that, though he stood there openly and palpably a converted man, who was sorrowing for his past irregularities, a fear overcame her, paralyzing her movement so that she neither retreated nor advanced. To think of what emanated from that countenance when she saw it last, and to behold it now! There was the same handsome unpleasantness of mien, but now he wore neatly trimmed old-fashioned whiskers, the sable moustache having disappeared, and his dress was half-clerical, a modification which had changed his expression sufficiently to abstract the dandyism from his features, and to hinder for a second her belief in his identity. To Tessa's sense there was, just at first, a ghastly bizarrerie, a grim incongruity in the march of these solemn words of Scripture out of such a mouth. This too familiar intonation, less than four years earlier, had brought to her eyes expressions of such divergent purpose that her heart became quite sick at the irony of the contrast. It was less a reform than a transfiguration. The former curves of sensuousness were now modulated to lines of devotional passion. The lip-shapes that had meant seductiveness were now made to express supplication. The glow on the cheek that yesterday could be translated as riotousness was evangelized to-day into the splendor of pious rhetoric. Animalism had become fanaticism, paganism, Paulinism. The bold rolling eye that had flashed upon her form in the old time with such mastery now beamed with the rude energy of a theology that was almost ferocious. Those black angularities which his face had used to put on when his wishes were thwarted now did duty in picturing the incorrigible backslider who would insist upon turning again to his wallowing in the mire. The lineaments, as such, seemed to complain they had been diverted from their hereditary connotation to signify impressions for which nature did not intend them. Strange that their very elevation was a misapplication, that to raise seemed to falsify. Yet could it be so? She would admit the ungenerous sentiment no longer. D'Urberville was not the first wicked man who had turned away from his wickedness to save his soul alive and why should she deem it unnatural in him? It was but the usage of thought which had been jarred in her at hearing good new words in bad old notes. The greater the sinner, the greater the saint. It was not necessary to dive far into Christian history to discover that. Such impressions as these moved her vaguely, and without strict definiteness. As soon as the nerveless pause of her surprise would allow her to stir, her impulse was to pass on out of his sight. He had obviously not discerned her yet in her position against the sun, but the moment that she had moved again he recognized her. The effect upon her old lover was electric, far stronger than the effect of his presence upon her. His fire, the tumultuous ring of his eloquence, seemed to go out of him. His lip struggled and trembled under the words that lay upon it but deliver them it could not as long as she faced him. His eyes, after their first glance upon her face, hung confusedly in every other direction but hers, but came back in a desperate leap every few seconds. This paralysis lasted, however, but a short time, for Tessa's energies returned with the atrophy of his, and she walked as fast as she was able past the barn and onward. As soon as she could reflect, it appalled her, this change in their relative platforms. He who had wrought her undoing was now on the side of the spirit, while she remained unregenerate. And, as in the legend, it had resulted that her Cyprian image had suddenly appeared upon his altar, whereby the fire of the priest had been well-nigh extinguished. She went on without turning her head, 
her back seemed to be endowed with a sensitiveness to ocular beams even her clothing so alive was she to a fancied gaze which might be resting upon her from the outside of that barn all the way along to this point her heart had been heavy with an inactive sorrow now there was a change in the quality of its trouble that hunger for affection too long withheld was for the time displaced by an almost physical sense of an implacable past which still engirdled her it intensified her consciousness of error to a practical despair the break of continuity between her earlier and present existence which she had hoped for had not after all taken place bygones would never be complete bygones till she was a bygone herself thus absorbed she recrossed the northern part of long ash lane at right angles and presently saw before her the road ascending whitely to the upland along whose margin the remainder of her journey lay its dry pale surface stretched severely onward unbroken by a single figure vehicle or mark save some occasional brown horse droppings which dotted its cold aridity here and there while slowly breasting this ascent tess became conscious of footsteps behind her and turning she saw approaching that well-known form so strangely accoutred as the methodist the one personage in all the world she wished not to encounter alone on this side of the grave there was not much time however for thought or illusion and she yielded as calmly as she could to the necessity of letting him overtake her she saw that he was excited less by the speed of his walk than by the feelings within him tess he said she slackened speed without looking round tess he repeated it is i alec d'urberville she then looked back at him and he came up i see it is she answered coldly well is that all yet i deserve no more of course he added with a slight laugh there is something of the ridiculous to your eyes in seeing me like this but i must put up with that i heard you had gone away nobody knew where tess you wonder why i have followed you i do rather and i would that you had not with all my heart yes you may well say it it returned grimly as they moved onward together she with unwilling tread but don't mistake me i beg this because you may have been led to do so in noticing if you did notice it how your sudden appearance unnerved me down there it was but a momentary faltering and considering what you have been to me it was natural enough but will helped me through it though perhaps you think me a humbug for saying it and immediately afterwards i felt that of all persons in the world whom it was my duty and desire to save from the wrath to come sneer if you like the woman whom i had so grievously wronged was that person i have come with that sole purpose in view nothing more there was the smallest vein of scorn in her words of rejoinder have you saved yourself charity begins at home they say i have done nothing he said indifferently heaven as i have been telling my hearers has done all no amount of contempt that you can pour upon me tess will equal what i have poured upon myself the old adam of my former years well it is a strange story believe it or not but i can tell you the means by which my conversion was brought about and i hope you will be interested enough at least to listen have you ever heard the name of the parson of emminster you must have done so old mr clare one of the most earnest of his school one of the few intense men left in the church not so intense as the extreme wing of christian believers with which i have thrown in my lot but quite an exception among the established clergy the younger of whom are gradually attenuating the true doctrines by their sophistries till they are but the shadow of what they were 
I only differ from him on the question of church and state, the interpretation of the text, Come out from among you, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. That's all. He is one who, I firmly believe, has been the humble means of saving more souls in this country than any other man you can name. You have heard of him? I have, she said. He came to Trantridge two or three years ago to preach on behalf of some missionary society, and I, wretched fellow that I was, insulted him, when, in his disinterestedness, he tried to reason with me and show me the way. He did not resent my conduct. He simply said that some day I should receive the first fruits of the Spirit, that those who came to scoff sometimes remained to pray. There was a strange magic in his words. They sank into my mind. But the loss of my mother hit me most, and by degrees I was brought to see daylight. Since then my one desire has been to hand on the true view to others, and that is what I was trying to do to-day, though it is only lately that I have preached hereabout. The first months of my ministry have been spent in the north of England among strangers, where I preferred to make my earliest clumsy attempts so as to acquire courage before undergoing that severest of all tests of one's sincerity, addressing those who have known one and have been one's companions in the days of darkness. If you could only know, Tess, the pleasure of having a good slap at yourself, I am sure—don't go on with it," she cried passionately, as she turned away from him to a stile by the wayside on which she bent herself. I can't believe in such sudden things. I feel indignant with you for talking to me like this, when you know—when you know what harm you've done me, you and those like you take your fill of pleasure on earth by making the life of such as me bitter and black with sorrow, and then it is a fine thing when you have had enough of that to think of securing your pleasure in heaven by becoming converted. Out upon such—I don't believe in you. I hate it. Tess, he insisted, don't speak so. It came to me like a jolly new idea. And you don't believe me? What don't you believe? Your conversion, your scheme of religion. Why? She dropped her voice. Because a better man than you does not believe in such. What's a woman's reason? Who is this better man? I cannot tell you. Well, he declared a resentment beneath his words seeming ready to spring out at a moment's notice. God forbid that I should say I am a good man, and you know I don't say any such thing. I am new to goodness, truly, but newcomers see furthest sometimes. Yes, she replied sadly, but I cannot believe in your conversion to a new spirit. Such flashes as you feel, Alec, I fear don't last. Thus speaking, she turned from the stile over which she had been leaning, and faced him, whereupon his eyes, falling casually upon the familiar countenance and form, remained contemplating her. The inferior man was quiet in him now, but it was surely not extracted, nor even entirely subdued. Don't look at me like that, he said abruptly. Tess, who had been quite unconscious of her action and mien, instantly withdrew the large dark gaze of her eyes, stammering with a flush, I beg your pardon. And there was revived in her the wretched sentiment which had often come to her before, that in inhabiting the fleshly tabernacle with which nature had endowed her, she was somehow doing wrong. No, don't beg my pardon. But since you wear a veil to hide your good looks, why don't you keep it down? She pulled down the veil, saying hastily, It was mostly to keep off the wind. It may seem harsh of me to dictate like this, 
he went on, but it is better that I should not look too often on you. It might be dangerous. Shh, said Tess. Well, women's faces have had too much power over me already for me not to fear them. An evangelist has nothing to do with such as they, and it reminds me of the old times that I would forget. After this their conversation dwindled to a casual remark now and then as they rambled onward, Tess inwardly wondering how far he was going with her, and not liking to send him back by positive mandate. Frequently when they came to a gate or stile they found painted thereon in red or blue letters some text of scripture, and she asked him if he knew who had been at the pains to blazon these announcements. He told her that the man was employed by himself and others who were working with him in that district, to paint these reminders that no means might be left untried which might move the hearts of a wicked generation. At length the road touched the spot called Cross in Hand. Of all spots on the bleached and desolate upland, this was the most forlorn. It was so far removed from the charm which is sought in landscape by artists and view-lovers as to reach a new kind of beauty, a negative beauty of tragic tone. The place took its name from a stone pillar which stood there, a strange rude monolith from a stratum unknown in any local quarry, on which was roughly carved a human hand. Differing accounts were given of its history and purport. Some authorities stated that a devotional cross had once formed the complete erection thereon, of which the present relic was but the stump others that the stone as it stood was entire and that it had been fixed there to mark a boundary or place of meeting anyhow whatever the origin of the relic there was and is something sinister or solemn according to mood in the scene amid which it stands something tending to impress the most phlegmatic passer-by i think i must leave you now he remarked as they drew near to this spot I have to preach at Abbot's Colonel at six this evening, and my way lies across to the right from here. And you upset me somewhat, too, Tessie. I cannot, will not, say why. I must go away and get strength. How is it that you speak so fluently now? Who has taught you such good English? I have learnt things in my troubles, she said evasively. What troubles have you had? She told him of the first one, the only one that related to him. D'Urberville was struck mute. I knew nothing of this till now, he next murmured. Why didn't you write to me when you felt your trouble coming on? She did not reply, and he broke the silence by adding, Well, you will see me again. No, she answered. Do not again come near me. I will think. But before we part, come here. He stepped up to the pillar. This was once a holy cross. Relics are not in my creed, but I fear you at moments far more than you need fear me at present. And to lessen my fear, put your hand upon that stone hand and swear that you will never tempt me by your charms or ways. Good God, how can you ask what is so unnecessary? All that is furthest from my thought. Yes, but swear it. Tess, half frightened, gave way to his importunity, placed her hand upon the stone, and swore. I am sorry you are not a believer he continued, that some unbeliever should have got hold of you and unsettled your mind. But no more now. At home, at least, I can pray for you, and I will. And who knows what may not happen? I'm off. Good-bye. He turned to a hunting-gate in the hedge, and without letting his eyes again rest upon her, leaped over and struck out across the down in the direction of Abbot's colonel. As he walked his pace showed perturbation, and by and by, as if instigated by a former thought, he drew from his pocket a small book, 
between the leaves of which was folded a letter, worn and soiled as from much re-reading. D'Urberville opened the letter. It was dated several months before this time, and was signed by Parson Clare. The letter began by expressing the writer's unfeigned joy at D'Urberville's conversion, and thanked him for his kindness in communicating with the parson on the subject. It expressed Mr. Clare's warm assurance of forgiveness for D'Urberville's former conduct, and his interest in the young man's plans for the future. He, Mr. Clare, would much have liked to see D'Urberville in the church to whose ministry he had devoted so many years of his own life, and would have helped him to enter a theological college to that end. But since his correspondent had possibly not cared to do this, on account of the delay it would have entailed, he was not the man to insist upon its paramount importance. Every man must work as he could best work, and in the method towards which he felt impelled by the spirit. Dermerville read and re-read this letter, and seemed to quiz himself cynically. He also read some passages from memoranda as he walked, till his face assumed a calm, and apparently the image of Tess no longer troubled his mind. She, meanwhile, had kept along the edge of the hill by which lay her nearest way home. Within the distance of a mile she met a solitary shepherd. "'What is the meaning of that old stone I have passed?' she asked of him. "'Was it ever a holy cross?' A cross? No, twere not a cross. Tis a thing of ill omen, miss. It was put up in old times by the relations of a malefactor, who was tortured there by nailing his hand to a post, and afterwards hung. The bones lie underneath. They say he sold his soul to the devil, and that he walks at times. She felt the petty more at this unexpectedly gruesome information and left the solitary man behind her. It was dusk when she drew near to Flintcomb Ash, and in the lane at the entrance to the hamlet she approached a girl and her lover without their observing her. They were talking no secrets, and the clear, unconcerned voice of the young woman, in response to the warmer accents of the man, spread into the chilly air as the one soothing thing within the dusky horizon full of a stagnant obscurity upon which nothing else intruded. For a moment the voices cheered the heart of Tess, till she reasoned that this interview had its origin, on one side or the other, in the same attraction which had been the prelude to her own tribulation. When she came close the girl turned serenely and recognized her, the young man walking off in embarrassment. The woman was Is Hewitt, whose interest in Tess's excursion immediately superseded her own proceedings. Tess did not explain very clearly its results, and Is, who was a girl of tact, began to speak of her own little affair, a phase of which Tess had just witnessed. He is Amby Seedling, the chap who used to sometimes come and help at Talbothay's, she explained indifferently. He actually inquired and found out that I had come here and has followed me. He says he has been in love with me these two years, but I've hardly answered him. Chapter 46 Several days had passed since her futile journey, and Tess was afield. The dry winter wind still blew, but a screen of thatched hurdles erected in the eye of the blast kept its force away from her. On a sheltered side was a turnip-slicing machine, whose bright blue hue of new paint seemed almost vocal in the otherwise subdued scene. Opposite its front was a long mound or grave, in which the roots had been preserved since early winter. Tess was standing at the uncovered end, chopping off with a bill-hook the fibres and earth from each root, and throwing it after the operation into the slicer. A man was turning the handle of the machine, and from its trough came the newly cut swedes, the fresh smell of whose yellow chips was accompanied by the sounds of the snuffling wind, the smart swish of the slicing blades, and the choppings of the hook in Tess's leather-gloved hand. The wide acreage of blank agricultural brownness, apparent where the swedes had been pulled, was beginning to be striped in wales of darker brown, gradually broadening to ribbons. 
Along the edge of each of these something crept upon ten legs, moving without haste and without rest up and down the whole length of the field. It was two horses and a man, the plough going between them, turning up the cleared ground for a spring sowing. For hours nothing relieved the joyless monotony of things. Then, far beyond the ploughing teams, a black speck was seen. It had come from the corner of a fence where there was a gap, and its tendency was up the incline, towards the swede-cutters. From the proportions of a mere point it advanced to the shape of a nine-pin, and was soon perceived to be a man in black, arriving from the direction of Flintcomb Ash. The man at the slicer, having nothing else to do with his eyes, continually observed the comer, but Tess, who was occupied, did not perceive him till her companion directed her attention to his approach. It was not her hard taskmaster, Farmer Groby. It was one in a semi-clerical costume, who now represented what had once been the free and easy Alec d'Urberville. Not being hot at his preaching, there was less enthusiasm about him now, and the presence of the grinder seemed to embarrass him. A pale distress was already on Tessa's face, and she pulled her curtained hood further over it. D'Urberville came up and said quietly, "'I want to speak to you, Tess. "'You have refused my last request not to come near me,' said she. "'Yes, but I have a good reason.' well tell it it is more serious than you may think he glanced round to see if he were overheard they were at some distance from the man who turned the slicer and the movement of the machine too sufficiently prevented alec's words reaching other ears d'urberville placed himself so as to screen tess from the labourer turning his back to the latter it is this he continued with capricious compunction in thinking of your soul and mine when we last met, I neglected to inquire as to your worldly condition. You were well dressed, and I did not think of it. But I see now that it is hard, harder than it used to be when I knew you, harder than you deserve. Perhaps a good deal of it is owning to me. She did not answer, and he watched her inquiringly as, with bent head, her face completely screened by the hood, she resumed her trimming of the swede. By going on with her work she felt better able to keep him outside her emotions. "'Tass,' he added, with a sigh of discontent, "'yours was the very worst case I ever was concerned in. I had no idea of what had resulted till you told me.' scamp that i was to foul that innocent life the whole blame was mine the whole unconventional business of our time at trantridge you too the real blood of which i am but the base imitation what a blind young thing you were as to possibilities i say in all earnestness that it is a shame for parents to bring up their girls in such dangerous ignorance of the gins and nets that the wicked may set for them, whether their motive be a good one or the result of simple indifference. Tess still did no more than listen, throwing down one globular root and taking up another with automatic regularity, the pensive contour of the mere field-woman alone marking her. "'But it is not that I came to say,' d'Urberville went on. "'My circumstances are these.' I have lost my mother since you were at Trentridge, and the place is my own, but I intend to sell it and devote myself to missionary work in Africa. A devil of a poor hand I shall make at the trade, no doubt. However, what I want to ask you is, will you put it in my power to do my duty, to make the only reparation I can make for the trick played you? That is, will you be my wife and go with me i have already obtained this precious document it was my own mother's dying wish he drew a piece of parchment from his pocket with a slight fumbling of embarrassment what is it said she a marriage license oh no sir no she said quickly starting back you will not why is that 
and as he asked the question a disappointment which was not entirely the disappointment of thwarted duty crossed d'urberville's face it was unmistakably a symptom that something of his old passion for her had been revived duty and desire ran hand in hand surely he began again in more impetuous tones and then looked round at the labourer who turned the slicer tass too felt that the argument could not be ended there informing the man that a gentleman had come to see her with whom she wished to walk a little way she moved off with d'urberville across the zebra-striped field when they reached the first newly ploughed section he held out his hand to help her over it but she stepped forward on the summits of the earth rolls as if she did not see him you will not marry me tess and, and make me a self-respecting man he repeated as soon as they were over the furrows i cannot but why you know i have no affection for you but you would get to feel that in time perhaps and as soon as you really could forgive me never never why so positive i love somebody else the words seemed to astonish him you do he cried somebody else but has not a sense of what is morally right and proper any weight with you no 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 don't say that anyhow then your love for this other man may be only a passing feeling which you will overcome no no yes yes why not i i cannot tell you you must in honour well then i have married him ah he exclaimed and he stopped dead and gazed at her i did not wish to tell i did not mean to she pleaded it is a secret here and at any rate but dimly known so will you please will you keep from questioning me you must remember that we are now strangers strangers are we strangers for a moment a flash of his old irony marked his face but he determinedly chastened it down is that man your husband he asked mechanically denoting by a sign the labourer had turned the machine that man she said proudly i should think not who then do not ask what i do not wish to tell she begged and flashed her appeal to him from her upturned face and lash shadowed eyes d'urberville was disturbed but i only asked you for your sake he retorted hotly angels of heaven god forgive me for such an expression i came here i swear as i thought for your good tess don't look at me so i cannot stand your looks there never were such eyes surely before christianity or since there i won't lose my head i dare not i own that the sight of you had waked up my love for you which i believed was extinguished with all such feelings but i thought that our marriage might be sanctification for us both the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband i said to myself but my plan is dashed from me and i must bear the disappointment he moodily reflected with his eyes on the ground married married well that being so he added quite calmly tearing the license slowly into halves and putting them in his pocket that being prevented i should like to do some good to you and your husband whoever he may be there are many questions that i am tempted to ask but i will not do so of course in opposition to your wishes though if i could know your husband i might more easily benefit him and you is he on this farm no she murmured he is far away far away from you 
what sort of husband can he be oh do not speak against him it was through you he found out ah is it so that's sad tess yes but to stay away from you to leave you to work like this he does not leave me to work she cried springing to the defence of the absent one with all her fervour he don't know it it is by my own arrangement then does he write i i cannot tell you there are things which are private to ourselves of course that means that he does not you are a deserted wife my fair tess in an impulse he turned suddenly to take her hand the buff glove was on it and he seized only the rough leather fingers which did not express the life or shape of those within you must not she cried fearfully slipping her hand from the glove as from a pocket and leaving it in his grasp oh will you go away for the sake of me and my husband go in the name of your own christianity yes yes i will he said abruptly and thrusting the glove back to her he turned to leave facing round however he said tess as god is my judge i meant no humbug in taking your hand a pattering of hoofs on the soil of the field which they had not noticed in their preoccupation ceased close behind them and a voice reached her ear what the devil are you doing away from your work at this time of day farmer groby had espied the two figures from a distance and had inquisitively ridden across to learn what was their business in his field don't speak like that to her said d'urberville his face blackening with something that was not christianity indeed mister and what might methodist parsons have to do with she who is this fellow asked d'urberville turning to tess she went close up to him go i do beg you she said what and leave you to that tyrant i can see in his face what a churl he is he won't hurt me he's not in love with me i can leave it lady day well i have no right but to obey i suppose but well good-bye her defender whom she dreaded more than her assailant having reluctantly disappeared the farmer continued his reprimand which tess took with the greatest coolness that sort of attack being independent of sex to have as a master this man of stone who would have cuffed her if he had dared was almost a relief after her former experiences she silently walked back towards the summit of the field that was the scene of her labour so absorbed in the interview which had just taken place that she was hardly aware that the nose of groby's horse almost touched her shoulders if so be you make an agreement to work for me till lady day i'll see that you carry it out he growled ah drat the women now tis one thing then tis another but i'll put up with it no longer knowing very well that he did not harass the other women of the farm as he harassed her out of spite for the flooring he had once received she did for one moment picture what might have been the result if she had been free to accept the offer just made her of being the moneyed alec's wife it would have lifted her completely out of subjection not only to her present oppressive employer but to a whole world who seemed to despise her but no no she said breathlessly i could not have married him now he is so unpleasant to me that very night she began an appealing letter to clare concealing from him her hardships and assuring him of her undying affection any one who had been in a position to read between the lines would have seen that at the back of her great love was some monstrous fear almost a desperation as to some secret contingencies which were not disclosed but again she did not finish her effusion he had asked is to go with him and perhaps he did not care for her at all she put the letter in her box and wondered if it would ever reach angel's hands 
after this her daily tasks were gone through heavily enough and brought on the day which was of great import to agriculturalists the day of the candlemas fair it was at this fair that new engagements were entered into for the twelve months following the ensuing lady day and those of the farming population who thought of changing their places duly attended at the county town where the fair was held nearly all the labourers on flintcomb ash farm intended flight and early in the morning there was a general exodus in the direction of the town which lay at a distance of from ten to a dozen miles over hilly country though tess also meant to leave at the quarter-day she was one of the few who did not go to the fair having a vaguely shaped hope that something would happen to render another outdoor engagement unnecessary it was a peaceful february day of wonderful softness for the time and one would almost have thought that winter was over she had hardly finished her dinner when d'herberville's figure darkened the window of the cottage wherein she was a lodger which she had all to herself to-day tess jumped up but her visitor had knocked at the door and she could hardly in reason run away d'herberville's knock his walk up to the door had some indescribable quality of difference from his air when she last saw him they seemed to be acts of which the doer was ashamed she thought that she would not open the door but as there was no sense in that either she arose and having lifted the latch stepped back quickly he came in saw her and flung himself down into a chair before speaking yes i couldn't help it he began desperately as he wiped his heated face which had also a superimposed flush of excitement i felt that i must call at least to ask how you are i assure you i had not been thinking of you at all till i saw you that sunday now i cannot get rid of your image try how i may it is hard that a good woman should do harm to a bad man yet so it is if you would only pray for me tess the suppressed discontent of his manner was almost pitiable and yet tess did not pity him how can i pray for you she said when i am forbidden to believe that the great power who moves the world would alter his plans on my account you really think that yes i have been cured of the presumption of thinking otherwise cured by whom by my husband if i must tell ah your husband how strange it seems i remember you hinted something of the sort the other day what do you really believe in these matters tess he asked you seem to have no religion perhaps owing to me but i have though i don't believe in anything supernatural d'herberville looked at her with misgiving then do you think that the line i take is all wrong a good deal of it <sighs> and yet i've felt so sure about it he said uneasily i believe in the spirit of the sermon on the mount and so did my dear husband but i don't believe here she gave her negations the fact is said d'herberville dryly whatever your dear husband believed you accept and whatever he rejected you reject without the least inquiry or reasoning on your own part that's just like you women your mind is enslaved to his ah because he knew everything said she with a triumphant simplicity of faith in angel clare that the most perfect man could hardly have deserved much less her husband yes but you should not take negative opinions wholesale from another person like that a pretty fellow he must be to teach you such scepticism he never forced my judgment he would never argue on the subject with me but i looked at it in this way what he believed after inquiring deep into doctrines was much more likely to be right than what i might believe who hadn't looked into doctrines at all what used he to say he must have said something she reflected 
and with her acute memory for the letter of Angel Clare's remarks, even when she did not comprehend their spirit, she recalled a merciless polemical syllogism that she had heard him use when, as it occasionally happened, he indulged in a species of thinking aloud with her at his side. In delivering it, she gave also Clare's accent and manner with reverential faithfulness. "'Say that again,' asked D'Urberville, who had listened with the greatest attention. She repeated the argument, and D'Urberville thoughtfully murmured the words after her. "'Anything else?' he presently asked. He said at another time something like this, and she gave another, which might possibly have been paralleled in many a work of the pedigree ranging from the Dictionnaire Philosophique to Huxley's essays. Ha! How do you remember them? I wanted to believe what he believed, though he didn't wish me to, and I managed to coax him to tell me a few of his thoughts. I can't say I quite understand that one, but I know it is right. Hmm. Fancy your being able to teach me what you don't know yourself. He fell into thought. And so I threw in my spiritual lot with his, she resumed. I didn't wish it to be different. Once good enough for him is good enough for me. Does he know that you are as big an infidel as he? No, I never told him, if I am an infidel. Well, you are better off today than I am, Tess, after all. You don't believe that you ought to preach my doctrine, and therefore do no despite to your conscience in abstaining. I do believe I ought to preach it, but like the devils I believe and tremble, for I suddenly leave off preaching it, and give way to my passion for you. How? Why? he said arrogantly, I have come all the way here to see you to-day, but I started from home to go to Casterbridge Fair, where I have undertaken to preach the word from a wagon at half-past two this afternoon, and where all the brethren are expecting me this minute. Here's the announcement. He drew from his breast-pocket a poster whereon was printed the day, hour, and place of meeting at which he, D'Urberville, would preach the gospel as aforesaid. "'But how can you get there?' said Tess, looking at the clock. "'I cannot get there. I have come here.' "'What? You have really arranged to preach, and—' "'I have arranged to preach, and I shall not be there, by reason of my burning desire to see a woman whom I once despised.' No. By my word and truth, I never despised you. If I had, I should not love you now. Why I did not despise you was on account of your being unsmirched in spite of all. You withdrew yourself from me so quickly and resolutely when you saw the situation. You did not remain at my pleasure. So there was one petticoat in the world for whom I had no contempt and you are she. But you may well despise me now. I thought I worshipped on the mountains, but I find I still serve in the groves. Oh, <laughs> oh Alec D'Aberville, what does this mean? What have I done? Done, he said, with a soulless sneer in the word. Nothing intentionally. But you have been the means, the innocent means, of my backsliding, as they call it. I ask myself, am I indeed one of those servants of corruption, who, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, are again entangled therein and overcome, whose latter end is worse than their beginning? He laid his hand on her shoulder. Yes, my girl, I was on the way to at least social salvation till I saw you again, he said, freakishly shaking her, as if she were a child. And why, then, have you tempted me? I was firm as a man could be till I saw those eyes and that mouth again, 
surely there never was such a maddening mouth since eve's his voice sank and a hot archness shot from his own black eyes you temptress tess you dear damned witch of babylon i could not resist you as soon as i met you again i couldn't help your seeing me again said tess recoiling i know it i repeat that i do not blame you but the fact remains when i saw you ill-used on the farm that day i was nearly mad to think that i had no legal right to protect you that i could not have it whilst he who has it seems to neglect you utterly don't speak against him he is absent she cried in much excitement treat him honourably he has never wronged you oh leave his wife before any scandal spreads that may do harm to his honest name i will he said like a man awakening from a luring dream i have broken my engagement to preach to those poor drunken boobies at the fair it is the first time i have played such a practical joke a month ago i should have been horrified at such a possibility i'll go away to swear and oh can i to keep away then suddenly one clasp tessie one only for old friendship i am without defence alec a good man's honour is in my keeping think be ashamed well yes yes he clenched his lips mortified with himself for his weakness his eyes were equally barren of worldly and religious faith the corpses of those old fitful passions which had lain inanimate amid the lines of his face ever since his reformation seemed to wake and come together as in a resurrection he went out indeterminately though d'herberville had declared that this breach of his engagement to-day was the simple backsliding of a believer tessa's words as echoed from angel clare had made a deep impression upon him and continued to do so after he had left her he moved on in silence as if his energies were benumbed by the hitherto undreamt of possibility that his position was untenable reason had had nothing to do with his whimsical conversion which was perhaps the mere freak of a careless man in search of a new sensation and temporarily impressed by his mother's death the drops of logic tess had let fall into the sea of his enthusiasm served to chill its effervescence to stagnation he said to himself as he pondered again and again over the crystallized phrases that she had handed on to him that clever fellow little thought that by telling her those things he might be paving my way back to her end of part one